Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce is away this week, but we look forward to her return next week. Today, we'll be discussing the new special counsel investigating the Biden documents, the legal status of abortion pills, and ethics for the Supreme Court. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Well, before we get started, you know, I saw a bumper sticker this week that I really wanted to discuss with Joyce. I'll have to talk with her when she's back. But the bumper sticker said, uh, I wrote this down. I believe in a better world where chickens can cross the road without having their motives questioned. I thought that was a good one. I want to ask Joyce about that. perfect. But I I love bumper stickers because I think they can tell you so much about the person who's driving the car. In fact, um, I used to ask prospective jurors what, if any, bumper stickers they had on their car. It was not an original idea by me. I learned it from somebody else. But, you know, you can learn about people if their bumper stickers say things like, you know, I'm the NRA or... Um, coexist. That's always, that always, it's very telling, I think, about somebody. It doesn't make the best prosecution juror when they've got the coexist bumper sticker. Um, how about you guys? Do you have any bumper stickers on your cars or do you like bumper stickers? I have none because I hate them. I think <laughs> they are just tacky and look awful on a car. And you sent out this wonderful I don't know, a hundred different bumper stickers that I could pick a favorite from. And I went, I didn't even laugh once. I mean, Man, really. Jill, I, I had you pegged this crazy bumper sticker lady. <laughs> no. I don't have any. I have some bumper stickers. The only one that I picked out of your list was, I bought this bumper sticker to cover up a Dave Matthews Band bumper sticker that was here <laughs> when I bought the car. I don't like Dave Band, <laughs> Matthews Band. <laughs> it was like, wow. oh, God, I hate All them. Right. I hate All them. Right. And I asked my husband for his favorite, and he told me too, and I was like, and you thought that was funny? <laughs> what about you, Kim? Do you like bumper stickers? Well, you know, I used to uh, have bumper stickers, but, the, you know, they can be perilous. So here's a story. When I lived in New York um, a while ago now, my goodness, two decades ago now, um, I was working as a reporter. I was parking on the street in Manhattan, you know, because I was I was that broke. Um 
because it costs more money to, to garage a car in Manhattan than my car was worth. So one day I was walking. I wasn't even going to my car, but I passed by my car where it was parked on the street. And I saw the window was broken. And I thought, oh, gosh, somebody broke into my car. So I walk over to it. And as I approach, I realized the broken window was the least of my problems. The entire back end of my car was charred, like completely oh, burned Torched? Uh, totally torched. Um, mm-hmm. I realized that the windows were broken probably by the firefighters who were putting the fire out. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the the fire marshal actually came out and, and looked and he um, determined that the, he believed that the, the trash that was on the curb somehow caught fire and it caught, it was right next to my car and my car and the car behind me mm. both caught fire as a result. You know, someone flicked a cigarette or something. But I have my doubts to that theory because even when I was living in New York City, I was an avid baseball fan and my team was the Boston Red Sox <laughs> and I had a Red Sox bumper sticker on oh. that car. So Motive. did somebody do it purposely? Fighting I have in questions. New York. I have questions. Oh, so yeah, be careful so with your bumper stickers, y'all. Yeah, well, story. you know, you can you can offend people. Like, for example, as a Detroiter, where we proudly drive our American-made vehicles, um, I always chuckle when I see somebody with the buy local bumper sticker on their Honda or Toyota vehicle. <laughs> that always gets me. Um, but I have some favorites. I really love one that says, um, my karma ran over my dogma. That's a good one. That always makes me laugh. And then my all-time favorite, which I always threatened to put on our cars when my children were learning how to drive, was... Um, if you don't like the way I drive, stay off the sidewalk. <laughs> That's I do like that one. I do. I did. <laughs> yes. But I'll have to send you a Vienna hot dog sticker to put on your car and see what happens <laughs> to you in Detroit. <laughs> Well, we have a new special counsel. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Robert Hur to investigate the mishandling of classified documents by, plot twist, Joe Biden. I really <laughs> did not see this coming. First, Kim, can you give us a timeline here? You know, the news has kind of dripped out over the past week, but the events have actually been going on since November. And I, I have found it kind of hard to keep track of how, you know, the documents actually were uncovered and how they were alerted. And um, up up until the time that Merrick Garland announced this special counsel on Thursday, can you just provide us with that timeline? Yeah, I'm with you, Barb. I had to kind of like draw myself a little diagram because mm-hmm. I was trying to put the timeline together. And, and right after uh, Garland's announcement, I actually misunderstood the timeline. It wasn't until after that I got it straight. So this is what happened. November 2nd is when these initial documents were found. There are about 10 documents that were marked as classified. And they were found in a downtown D.C. office that uh, President Biden used for a period of time after he left the vice president's office. Uh, and, and they were discovered by one of his aides who immediately notified the National Archives and, and, and DOJ of this discovery. Well, of course, now we all know that there was a second uh, set. Uh, so there were more documents found in at uh, Joe Biden's home in Delaware in a garage next to a Corvette. <laughs> and so but that revelation came out like, 
hour, hours really before Merrick Garland made his announcement. And I didn't know whether uh, that sort of spurred that decision to make a special, to, to have a special counsel in place. And initially when Garland was speaking, he, it was clear that he had been working on this decision. He had made this decision sometime prior to announcing it. And I thought, oh, perhaps he made this decision after the first documents were found. But no, turns out those documents uh, in the garage were found on December 20th. So he had knowledge of both sets of this, which makes more sense. I, I would think that with that first, those first 10 documents, maybe you, mm-hmm. the DOJ would be able to handle that inquiry alone. Once you have a second uh, location where documents are, I think at that point he, he had no choice in order to protect the integrity of this probe and of the office and, and ensure public faith. I think he really needed to appoint that special counsel. So I think this was in the works before we knew all of the details, but uh, it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. And then I think there was also that one additional stray document that was found Monday uh, in his uh, library at, at his home uh, in a room adjacent to that garage. And, you know, th- there's there's no good answer here for Joe Biden other than to say, I didn't know about it, I'm shocked. And and to, to acknowledge that it's a big deal. You know, I thought one comment he made to minimize it was ill-advised. He said, well, it was locked up with my Corvette and, you know, I take good care of that. So uh, no worries, folks. <sighs> you know, classified documents, especially top secret, which it, 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 it turns out at least one of these documents is, um, you know, must be kept in a skiff, a, a sensitive compartment, an information facility, a special room. So there's uh, there's no good way of, of explaining why it's in the room, even with your Corvette, Joe Biden. Um, so, so Jill, um, by now we've we've been through special counsels a bit, right? We've had uh, Robert Mueller and Jack Smith, and now um, this new one. Well, according to the regulations, under what circumstances does the attorney general appoint a special counsel? So. Of course, there are different laws that have applied. When we go back, I operated under one set of rules. And then you had Ken Starr, who operated under a completely different set of rules. And the current rules are the ones that are guiding the current two and Mueller also. And those say that you appoint a special counsel when the attorney general determines that criminal investigation is warranted And in this case, the attorney general actually got a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, the U.S. attorney from my district, Northern District of Illinois, Lausch, to make that initial determination. And then he has to decide, in addition, that the Department of Justice or a normal U.S. attorney's office can't do the investigation because of a conflict of interest and that it would be in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. So that's how you get to having a special counsel. Yeah. And so now in this case, I think, you know, it's it's still in the early stages that we don't have all of the facts, but certainly uh, Joe Biden's critics are equating his conduct with the conduct of former President Donald Trump, who has been under investigation by a different special counsel, Jack Smith, for retaining classified documents at his home at his uh, Mar-a-Lago resort. Kim, based on the information we know that is in the public domain, do you see these two cases as, as being equivalent? Certainly not. Certainly not. I will start by saying, look, it is a serious matter when um, 
Classified documents are any place other than where they are authorized to be that is problematic, that is unlawful, and there's a reason for that. So I, I am in no way saying that what Joe Biden did was fine. It was sloppy. Uh, and it, d- depending on who could have had uh, access to it, it's always potentially dangerous when that happens. It could be a matter of national security. Now, with that said, there is a difference between um having mistakenly put uh, classified documents somewhere, which is unlawful, but that's generally what we call an administrative matter. That means that the whatever agency is involved would have ways to deal with that. And might there be some sort of you know, repercussion? Sure. There's a difference between that and willful mishandling of classified documents and certainly obstruction of justice, which are both criminal. Um, and, and that seems to be more in line of what happened at Mar-a-Lago based on what we know. This seems so far uh, by Joe Biden to be inadvertent, if sloppy, but inadvertent. So those are really different clear lines that can be drawn here. We will have to wait to see what the special counsel uh, ultimately finds out. But so far, these look like uh, apples and orangutans. Yeah, um, yeah, not just apples and oranges, but something even more. I think more different it's apples. apples. <laughs> I think it's apples and rotten apples. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let, let me just say um, it brings to mind to me. What Jim Comey said when he recommended that the FBI, it was the position of the FBI, that Hillary Clinton not be charged with um, violations for mishandling classified information based on the, her private email server. And what he said at that time was that they had reviewed every prior case that the Department of Justice had brought against someone for mishandling classified documents. And what he said is the department has never brought a case unless it involved an aggravating factor. Because when there is a mistake, as Kim said, perhaps there's an administrative remedy uh, like termination, suspension, um, loss of a clearance, something like that. Uh, But for a criminal violation to be prosecuted and subjected to prison, uh, it required the presence of an aggravating factor. And those factors included willfulness, obstruction of justice, or disloyalty to the United States. And so far, as Kim just said, I I don't see any of that evidence with regard to Joe Biden. For Donald Trump, eh, willfulness and obstruction seem apparent. So we'll have to see how these facts played out. So, so Jill, do you think Merrick Garland made the right call in appointing a special counsel? I mean, what are the what are the pros and cons for Merrick Garland of appointing a special counsel here? Well, there's legal and there's political issues at stake here. And politically, I think he made the right call. He Um, And and as Kim pointed out, there were two and now three different uh, revelations of documents in three different locations. Uh, Although I want to point out that the total number is under 10 versus the over 300, including cartons of documents that were taken and the obstruction, as Kim pointed out, that happened with Trump. So the two are very different. Um, And but I think. You have to view things in context. And in the context of a special counsel being appointed for an investigation of documents that we can all agree both were wrongfully removed and put in places they should never have been. So when you start with that basic similarity, it would look really bad if you have a special counsel for one and not for the other, even though the distinctions, I believe, outweigh the similarities. So yes, I think he made the right call in appointing a special counsel. And the only, the, 
the main pro uh, in favor of this is that it makes it seem to anyone looking that there is equal treatment. It takes away any possible view of it looking like it is um, a conflict of interest for the department that is appointed by the president to investigate the president. On the other hand, the current regulations about appointing a special counsel and the current regulations of how a special counsel operates means that ultimately the decision to indict or not is made by the attorney general. And so you don't really, in fact, get the independence that used to exist. And so for me, in a sense, the pro and the con kind of balance themselves out because it isn't, it's only maybe slightly effective in eliminating a conflict or an appearance of conflict. Kim, do you agree? Do you think uh, Merrick Garland did the right thing by appointing a special counsel? Um, yes, Uh, under the circumstances, yes. So given, um, and and Jill is really right to separate the legal aspect, like what the, what the regulations for special counsel uh, are from the, and I think it's more than political. I think it's an, I would call it an institutional issue, right? After the Trump special counsel was done. I said, I've said on this podcast before uh, that special counsel was appointed that I didn't think it was necessarily necessary in the Trump case. And what I wish had happened is that it happened either like in the Biden case right away, as soon as the disclosure of these documents happened or not at all, because the way that it happened, it was after they waited until after Trump declared his candidacy for 2024 to do it, it looked, that made it look political. That actually undermined the DOJ, I think. Um, so it would have been better if they did it right away. Since they did that, I think, especially with uh, the Biden confidential uh, uh, classified information found in multiple places, they had, they really had no choice for all the reasons that Jill said, in order for the American public to have faith in the Justice Department, that they are acting without fear or favor, and that this is... Uh, on the level, I think it was really necessary, particularly once these documents were found in more than one place. And Barb, I just want to add that while I answered, yes, I think he made the right call, I don't think it was legally essential that he do it. I don't think that it was one of those things. I, like you, have a love of the Department of Justice where I found great integrity. I loved being part of that organization. And I think that the lawyers in the department could have independently and without political bias handled this investigation. But particularly in the context of there was one for, for already Trump, I think that it was um, a good call and that even though not legally required, it was the right thing to do. Did yeah, I-, I think I agree with that. You know, I think Merrick Garland recognizes that we live in extraordinary times when everything you do is going to be criticized by your political opponents. And even if it was the right thing for the DOJ to investigate this themselves, you know, critics will howl. And here's a way uh, to make sure that the Justice Department uh enjoys the confidence of the public, which is an important part of its work. So I think so. You know, the other thing I keep, I keep trying to put myself in the head of Merrick Garland because he knows something we don't know, which is the likelihood of an indictment against Donald Trump. And so mm-hmm. one thing that might motivate him is if you know an indictment of Donald Trump is coming, then you need to do all you can to insulate yourself from uh, the kinds of 
criticism that is no doubt going to follow. And so, you know, does this make it more likely that an indictment is is happening? You know, not not that this is dictating it, but that Merrick Garland knows it's coming. And so, oh man, I better get a special counsel in there because I know this criticism's coming. I also saw someone point out that this is a strategic move because by having a special counsel, he is avoiding uh, congressional oversight, you know, a congressional hearing where they're asking Garland questions about all of this. Now we can say, hey, it's part of a, an ongoing investigation. We don't talk about ongoing investigations. Mm-hmm. And it's not me, it's the special counsel. So maybe there's something to that. Um, well, we have a special counsel now, whether we agree with it or not. And so, Kim, what do we know about him? His name's Robert Herr. Who is Robert Herr? Well, Robert Herr is somebody who has uh, a sufficient amount of Republican bona fides, which I don't think was by accident. So most recently, he was working in the private sector at a large respected law firm called Gibson Dunn. But before that, he was a U.S. attorney uh, for Maryland. And this was during the Trump administration. Before that, uh, he worked in the DOJ. He was, uh, among other things, one of the deputies of Rod Rosenstein, uh, who we have talked about on this podcast before. Uh, he also worked in the criminal division uh, under Christopher Ray, who is now the uh, FBI director. These are all uh, Republicans. Uh, and even a- after law school, he clerked for the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist. So I think this was a, a, an important and pretty smart move by uh, Merrick Garland. He's also someone who has... Uh, you know, we, we've I've heard praise about uh, Rob Herr's work from both Democrats and Republicans. He seems very competent, very serious. Um, uh, and I think Merrick Garland didn't want this to look like there was some Democrat sort of, you know, putting the thumb on the scale in favor of Joe Biden. So I think that it was a smart choice. Yeah. Now, I guess the risk, Jill, since you've seen these different um, independent counsel and special counsel investigations and all the different iterations um, there's always the risk that it can spiral out of control, right? Um, you know, like, you know, Ken Starr with the Whitewater investigation, um, you know, started as one thing and ended as something else. There's always the chance they find a blue dress. Uh, any concerns there that uh, they may look for Joe Biden's classified documents and find Hunter Biden's real laptop? I don't know. I mean, is there is there a risk? Well, they're already linking it to Hunter Biden. Uh, That is the Congress. They're saying that Hunter Biden was in that house, so he had access to those top secret documents. So um, in terms of the rules under which people operate, there was an intent to try to limit what happened with Ken Starr, which really did get out of hand, not just in terms of what he investigated, but of how he communicated it to the public and to Congress. Um, so the new rules were intended to restrict it. But basically, the new rules make the special counsel, and I was a special prosecutor, then in between was the independent, uh, I'm sorry, the special, yeah, the independent counsel was Ken Starr. Now it's a special counsel. So there are different rules for all of them. And the new rules um, make him more like a U.S. attorney, give him the powers of the U.S. attorney. And a U.S. attorney, of course, is free to define whatever he investigates. So even though he was appointed to investigate the possession of these classified documents or documents marked as classified, um, and there seems to be a distinction being drawn by the media between those that are marked and those that are classified information, um, it could go beyond that 
if they find something in the course of a legitimate investigation of those documents. So that, that, that does, it doesn't worry me because I don't think there's anything there. I don't have any reason to worry that there is something that will be uncovered, but it would be an unpleasant circumstance. And we already have, you know, the Durham stuff and all these other uh, extraneous investigations. It's just not good for the country. And then you have Congress doing the same thing. Yeah, I think all in all, it's probably good and it's probably healthy for our country to scrutinize potential misconduct by the president. But it does remind me of uh, words of my mother who often says, I don't want to go to the doctor for a checkup. They might find something wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) Also, can I just say, uh, please, Obama, Clinton, Carter, Al Gore, check your garage. Like, just check it now. Like, (laughs) you know, I feel like this slow drip every week. There's a new one. Everybody go and look at your files and just get it all (laughs) out of the open now. That's such great advice. And it does remind me, you know, during Watergate, when the White House first told us that there were missing tapes. They said there were two missing tapes. And about a month later, they went, whoops, we forgot. There's a third that has an 18 and a half minute gap. And just in terms of trial strategy, in terms of being a, you know, a lawyer, it's really bad for the drip, drip, drip. If everything comes out at once, like if all three caches of documents that have now been discovered have been found at once, you could have said less than 10 documents have been found and that would have been the end of it. But doing it drip, drip, drip is really not a good way. It really isn't. So W, check between your paint, you know, your easels. (laughs) (laughs) The anti-abortion movement is going where it used to avoid going before, suggesting that those who seek abortive care may themselves face criminal punishment. That's what Alabama's attorney general suggested when he said that pregnant women could be prosecuted for taking abortion pills under the state's abortion ban. Uh, We don't have our resident Alabama this week uh, to explain what's happening down there. But we do have Jill Wine-Banks, who is probably more qualified than anyone uh, to talk about the protection of women's rights. So, Jill, can you explain Alabama's law and what Steve Marshall is talking about? I will, and I'm only qualified because I've been fighting this longer than any of you by mere fact of my age, that this has been a lifetime issue for me, uh, that went away after, you know, we had Roe, and now it's back in full force. And the Alabama law is one of the strictest in the country. It's really, really strict because it basically uh, bars any kind of abortion with no exception for rape or incest, only for the life of the mother is there an exception. It bans 100% of abortions after conception. That's from the moment of fertilization, you cannot have an abortion. So it's basically no abortions. And um, it was originally viewed as protecting the person seeking the abortion, but It is now under what he's saying, it could lead to prosecution of the person seeking the abortion for taking the pill, uh, either because that induces an abortion and is therefore an abortion, 
or because they're talking about using the Chemical Endangerment uh, Act, which would, again, this treats the fetus as an unborn child um, and makes it illegal to harm it through taking a chemical. And so, Barb, his guidance comes after uh, federal authorities did a couple of things. One, uh, the FDA authorized uh, retail pharmacies like CVS to distribute the abortion pill in states where they are legal. And also the Department of Justice gave guidance that said the post office can deliver pills to any state, regardless of the law there. Republican state officials in Alabama and elsewhere saying, no, no, we will enforce our laws no matter what the feds say. This sounds like a big old federalism fight. How do you think it'll shake out, Yeah, I think this is going to be the new battleground area between the federal government and state governments, because this is a relatively new development, the abortion pill, where you don't need a provider. And so if providers are going to be prosecuted criminally for performing abortions, well, here's a much easier way to achieve an abortion. It's through a pill. And so um, it is, I think, forcing leaders in Republican states who are anti-abortion advocates to look at different ways to address it. But currently, most of the laws on the books make it a crime for providers to perform abortions. If instead a person is simply taking pills to achieve an abortion, then there is really no provider there to do it. And so I think it will require and we'll start to see some new statutes on the books in these states. But, um, you know, currently, even in Alabama, as Jill said, there isn't a law on the books that makes it a crime um, to abort a fetus through medication. It's instead a crime to expose a fetus to dangerous chemicals. And it was put in place for uh, methamphetamine labs when uh, fetuses were exposed or young children were exposed uh, to meth in those labs. And so it would extend it there. But I think that we could see places where they make it illegal for uh, pregnant people to either use or possess these pills. Currently, we see um, uh, pharmacies can sell them and uh, post postal workers can deliver them. And so I think it might really come down to, are they willing to prosecute uh, the, the pregnant person, which mm-hmm. uh, has always been uh, outside of, of the target range for the uh, anti-abortion advocates. And I should point out that it's a 99-year felony for this violation. So that would really be a significant penalty. And Jill, talk a little bit more about the the point that Barb made. You know, the anti-abortion movement used to steer far clear. They always say, no, no, we would never, we would never prosecute a pregnant woman. You know, why is that changing? And what could this mean for other states? And what comes next? Because could this lead to personhood laws? Uh, the answer is yes to all of that. I also, I when I was listening to your question, if I'm not mistaken, I remember someone interviewing candidate Donald Trump, who said absolutely that we would have to prosecute the woman seeking an abortion. Yeah, and so that. this may be Right. So maybe he's the start of all this. But yes, I think personhood laws are something that is coming and that would give the fetus all the rights of any other person, even though that fetus cannot live anywhere but inside of a woman's body. Um, There are 
people who are specialists in, uh, particularly Mary Ziegler, a law professor at the University of California at Davis, specializes in abortion issues and is um, concerned about what's happening with the possibility of prosecuting the person seeking reproductive health care. And basically, it would lead to a premise that anything is child abuse or child neglect if it happens during pregnancy, while it's only capable of living inside of a woman's body. And so it is, it's a, yeah, I, I would say it is a legitimate concern that we have um, <sighs> that could lead to very strict expansion, not just the loss of the row rights. It's really wild to think about uh, the direction this is headed. But Barb, not all Southern states are in line with Alabama. Last week, South Carolina's highest court issued its own decision. It was essentially a state level Roe versus Wade. What happened there and, and could other states follow its lead? Yeah, this was a really interesting development. South Carolina, you know, in the heart of the South, uh, so the Supreme Court found that there is a state constitutional right to privacy that protects the right to an abortion. And, you know, you could very well imagine other states following this lead. Now, it's going to be a little different in every state because every state has its own constitution. Roe versus Wade, of course, was based on the the U.S. Constitution. And so, you know, now some states are beginning to look at their state constitutions. And in South Carolina, they found that this privacy right protected that right. And so that is likely to be a battleground now that other states might try. And one thing that is interesting, you know, if when you get past these Republican legislatures, there are a lot of people in conservative states who want to protect the right to an abortion. I mean, we had that um, ballot initiative in Kansas that overwhelmingly approved the right to an abortion in Michigan in November. Uh, a, a constitutional amendment was voted by the people in overwhelming fashion to amend the Constitution to protect the right to an abortion explicitly. There had been an argument that it was implicit in you know other rights, but uh, a specific provision. So I, I think that that uh, that gives I think some some hope and some strategy to uh, people who are are seeking to protect the right to an abortion in certain states to try those state constitutions. And they're going to vary. No one's bound by the uh, either the language or the interpretation of the. Supreme Court of South Carolina, but um, certainly a victory there is, is likely to be empowering to advocates in other states. Well, let's hope that we see more of that uh, with other states following their lead. Either that or some more state ballads, some state initiatives like in Michigan, um, where they were successful in passing uh, support. And I think Kansas and other states have had the same. You know, Jill, some Well, we've talked about Justice Thomas's refusal to recuse from cases where his wife's public statements of interest in the outcome create an apparent conflict of interest. We've talked about how rich people make their views known to the Supreme Court and maybe even learn about decisions before they're public by making large contributions to the Supreme Court Historical Society. But with the public opinion of the court now at record lows, and Chief Justice Roberts having failed to deal with any of these issues in his annual report, I think we have to talk about another issue that raises ethical issues for SCOTUS. 
And that is the million dollar plus advances that Supreme Court justices have recently received for their memoirs and for some speeches they've given in political settings. I want to start with book contracts, Kim. Your husband wrote a terrific expose on this issue, which will be in our show notes. But could you tell our listeners the facts of who wrote what and how much they made and why ethics attorneys consider it a breach of ethics rules? Yeah, it's an interesting and fascinating subject. So it it came about because the newest justice on the court, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, just inked a book deal. Um, We don't know all of the details of it, but it looks like the advance is in excess of a million dollars for her to write her memoir. Uh, That is actually uh, not even the highest amount that a justice has recently received in in an advance book deal. Amy Coney Barrett, uh, when she ascended to the court, got a book deal for still yet to be uh, released book, but she got a $2 million reported advance for her book. Now, people write books all the time. Supreme Court justices write books. What's the big deal? Well, it depends on how those books are sold and marketed. You have one issue, for example, what if, um, say, CPAC or the Republican National Convention Uh, did what they did with uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s book, which is buy a whole heap of copies to put in the, you know, little swag bags of the attendees. But buying all those copies were were meant to boost book sales, to get them on the New York Times bestseller list, and also to line his pockets. (laughs) He makes money off of each of those books that are sold. And if the same thing is done for Amy Coney Barrett by, say, the Federalist Society or uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson by the American Constitutional Society, for example, does that mean that these justices are making lucrative deals off of special interest groups? And that essentially creates kind of a loophole in the financial disclosure rules uh, that they're subject to. And, And it can be an ethical concern. Is it in every single situation? I'm not sure. But there could be some there there, and it's at least something to think about. And uh, that is one of the issues that Greg highlighted in the story. And, and Barb, do you think it is an actual conflict of interest for justices to be selling their memoirs for huge sums of money? Do you think it's unethical or is it just a bad look for the court? I think it is one of those perceived conflicts of interest. Now, I suppose it could be an actual conflict of interest if, as Kim just described, some particular group buys up thousands of books and lines the pockets of the justice, and then the case comes before the justice and they rule in their favor. The justice should be required to recuse, I suppose, at the very least in an instance like that. But I think in terms of public perception of the court, it's a problem. And I don't think that's a made-up problem. I think it's a real problem. The legitimacy of the court matters. It's taken some hits in recent years with the shadow docket and its uh, disregard for precedent. And you know, now, if we see justices cashing in and getting rich off of their titles, I, I think that's a bad look. That is... Uh, is a conflict of interest because it is something that diminishes uh, the stature of the court and public confidence in the court. So I don't know what the solution is because I do think justices have stories to tell and unique insights that are useful. You know, when politicians write their memoirs, it's usually once they've left office. And so that doesn't bring with it the same kinds of potential conflicts. But because justices serve for life, if they are going to write memoirs or other books, and some do, some write about legal jurisprudence or about the history of the court, 
um, it, it creates this issue. I'll tell you, one of my favorite books of all time is Sonia Sotomayor's memoirs. Yeah. I think they're fantastic. But, you know, she got <laughs> she got big money for that. I don't know if there's some way to maybe have their profits go into a trust. Uh, you know, the ethics rules say they're allowed to earn a, a reasonable um, profit from it. Maybe, you know, you cap their profits at a couple hundred thousand dollars and the rest goes into a, a, a trust of some sort. Um, I don't know, but you don't want to disincentivize them from sharing, uh, you know, what, what could be useful information in the world. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is, um, undermines public trust when you see them either getting rich off their story or, uh, exposing themselves to, compromised by groups who will buy their books in bulk um, to curry favor. So maybe just barring people with things before the court from buying huge quantities of the book, because we do want to know who the justices are. I think one of the mistakes Mueller made was making sure that nobody knew who his prosecutors were. And one of the good things that our uh, the special prosecutor in Watergate did was letting America know who the prosecutors were and that we weren't with bad motives. Um, but Kim, what is the exact language of the ethics rule about outside income? Is there some special <laughs> thing that it says? And does it apply to the Supreme Court? So these are very interesting questions. I am literally looking at the language right now um, on the U.S. court's website, and it is murky. It is not entirely clear. It makes clear that Supreme Court justices do have to file financial disclosure statements, which they do every year. Sometimes they come late. I believe usually Justice Alito is always the last to file his because they're, you know, his finances are so complicated. Um, but essentially, they're they're required to uh, make financial reports, and they, if you've ever seen them, they list. Um, how much the justices make and the source, the general sources of it. Again, if it's something like a book deal, it would just list how much they made from a book. It wouldn't list who bought these books and how those sales were boosted. So that creates um, a loophole. And it also says that the, it, these rules are subject to whatever code of conduct applies to the judicial conduct, uh, to the judicial official. Now that's where the rub is because the ethical rules that judge that govern the Supreme Court are entirely different than those that govern other federal judges. Essentially, the Supreme Court is self-governing. There, there are no ethical rules that apply directly to them. So it's up to them to decide what to do in these circumstances. And I think that this is just one aspect of a bigger problem. For example, there, I was talking to someone who uh, looks at uh, this issue of transparency very seriously. And for example, Supreme Court justices don't even have the same requirements as members of Congress, for example, who, if they are put up at a hotel by someone, a member of Congress needs to disclose that. If they get lots of gifts from someone, a member of Congress needs to disclose that in a way that Supreme Court justices just don't. So I think there, there should be an overhaul. What's the, what's the solution? I think an overhaul of the ethical rules that make it clear what the Supreme Court justices must do and has some enforcement teeth is a good place to start. I think that's commonsensical and it should at the very least mirror what other federal judges and perhaps members of Congress are required to do as well. So it's really interesting because the ethics rule seems to say something about they have a right to outside income that would be comparable to 
other people similarly situated. So Barb, since you're writing a book now, give us your perspective on whether the amounts that they are receiving for advances and royalties you would consider to be comparable, normal. Yeah, so $1 million and $2 million advances. I guess I will say that despite my incredible celebrity status, I was not offered a $1 or $2 million advance. So uh, it sounds a little high to me. I, I actually did a little research to find out what is the average advance for a debut author, and it is $57,000. Oh. So um, the $1 or $2 million is you know quite a bit by a factor of 20 or what, 40, depending on uh, uh, which of these advances you want to look at. So it does seem high. Now, I will also say these are not ordinary debut authors, right? They're, they're selling their name. They're selling their story. And uh, that is what capitalism is all about, Charlie Brown, right? The people are willing to buy it in the same way Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are able to sell, get big advances and sell a lot of books. People want to read their stories. So um, I don't know if you can compare them to normal people. And I will just say this, and it's, these are not easy questions, right? Does the first black woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court have the right to tell her story the way she wants to? Yes. Are there lots of people, as Barb pointed out, who look up to her and want to read about her story? Yes. Are there a lot of people who want to read about Amy Coney Barrett's story? You know, the the youngest justice on the court, the the mother of seven uh, who's juggling that and being a justice at the same time? Yes. Does she have the right to tell it? Yes. So how do you draw those lines, right? What do you do? It would be nice if the justices on their own volition said, hey, beyond a certain point, I'm going to donate this money to this Mm -hmm. cause or I'm going to, you know, do something else with it. So there's no, um, it doesn't seem like, um, you know, there's something nefarious going on there. On the other hand, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, we talked about how popular and lucrative her book was. She was like the, when when all of the financial disclosures came out, when she ascended to the court, she was making like no money and she had a ton of debt. Like she had worked her whole life in the public (laughs) sector and she was like the least wealthy of all of the justices. So part of me is like, you know, let a sister earn some cash. Like it's, it's okay. At least, you know, all the other justices were millionaires. Let, let her catch up. So, I mean, these are hard questions. It's not hard and fast rules, but I'm glad that we're talking about the issues that they raise. I think that's important. It is important. And you started on this, Kim, as to what could be done to improve the public's opinion of the court, which is, as I said, at its low point. Um, Barb, is there anything you want to add to what maybe the court or Congress could do? Well, one, I would love to see them um, stop doing so much on their shadow docket. You you know, this was, uh, we've talked about this before, this sort of the administrative docket, where usually it's a place for, you know, stays and emergency orders and things. And it seems like more and more they're putting substantive merits decisions there in a way that uh, doesn't get the same kind of argument and, you know, vigorous uh, briefing that other things do. I think that would be one. I also feel very uncomfortable whenever they do these speeches to outside groups. Uh, you know, like Alito went to Rome and talked to a group and you, you get the sense sometimes that maybe they are pandering to the crowd and saying things for cheap applause that can impact public confidence uh, in 
their decisions. So I, I don't know if you want to prohibit it altogether. I mean, I've, again, I've seen, I've seen Elena Kagan speak and thought it was amazing. I've seen Sotomayor speak. I saw Justice Stevens speak. I've seen Chief Justice Roberts speak, uh, many of them, Ginsburg. And I loved it. Um, but I, I just worry that when they, you know, travel to these exotic locations, um, I, I don't know who's paying those fees, uh, and they're there and, and generating cheap laughs from a partisan group that that doesn't in some way diminish the public perception of the individual justice and the court as a whole. And so I think there should be something there that looks at that about public speaking fees. Well, now comes the point in our show that is our absolute favorite, the part where we answer listener questions. And I will tell you that before we start recording, we spend a lot of time debating which questions to answer because we get so many good ones. So we chose three, but man, there's so many to choose from. It was difficult. We almost came to blows. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Hal from Euclid, Ohio. And Hal asks, does the fact that the Supreme Court left the New York gun law in place mean that it is likely to uphold it. Kim, you were up on this issue last week. You wrote about it. What do you think about Hal's question? Yeah, that's a good point. And we mentioned in last week's podcast that um, there could be some tea leaves to be read there. Well, I'm sorry to inform you, Hal, that uh, the fact that they let the law stay in place is actually the least number of tea leaves they could give us. That's generally... Um, the protocol in a case where the Supreme Court is not yet ready to get involved, they will let stand the most recent lower court opinion, which was the Second Circuit, which let that law stay in place. It overturned the lower court that 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 put an um, a temporary pause on it. So we don't know. We don't know what the Supreme Court can do. Maybe they are not yet ready to go beyond Bruin in the First Amendment, but. Maybe they just want to see what the second, the second circuit hasn't even ruled in this case yet. So maybe they just want to hold their, you know, keep their powder dry, no pun intended, <laughs> to see what oh, the second God. circuit does before they get into this. So I don't think we really know one way or another. All right. Because I remember we did think that we could read some tea leaves with the abortion decision when the Supreme Court left intact that Texas law um, yes. that made so me feel bad. Like, <laughs> no, well, that was different though. I think if the Supreme Court stopped this law from going into effect, mm-hmm. that would tell us a lot. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they left yeah. it in place, they left the status quo, yeah. doesn't tell us anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I see. Good point. All right. Our next question comes to us from Donna in Boise, Idaho. And Donna asks, like many of your fans, oh, thank you, Donna, I am impressed by how you seem to do it all. And I've heard all of your great tips on how to stay organized. But to make us mere mortals feel better, do you ever procrastinate? How do you fight against the tendency? Jill, what do you say to Donna? Donna, I am a big procrastinator. I absolutely am. I don't even try to fight against the tendency because mostly what I do is not do something until I'm really ready to do it. 
So I'll procrastinate and at 11 o'clock I'll feel at night. (laughs) I'll feel motivated (laughs) to start doing my work. And so then I'll just work straight through till two or three in the morning. And I get it all done really fast if I wait until I'm really ready. So for me, procrastination is really just spending time relaxing until I'm ready to do the tasks that I have to get done. But I always keep in mind when there's a deadline and I never miss a deadline. I do things like, oh, my desk needs to be cleaned up. Well, there's no deadline on that, except if someone's coming over and my desk is disgusting looking and it's in the kitchen and they're gonna see it, that's my deadline, then I'll clean it up. Usually by throwing it all in a box and putting it away somewhere until I can throw it away. Um, Cause most of it is so old that it just gets thrown away. But yeah, I love to procrastinate. Now I wonder, Barb, Kim, do you ever procrastinate? I'm so excited that I share this trait in common with Joe Winebanks because <laughs> I am 100% deadline driven. I actually had to tell my editor who would say things like, hey, can you look into this issue? I'm like, yeah, I can look into it. I can look into it for the next four years. You need to tell me I need this piece by Thursday at 2 p.m. Like you need to give me a hard deadline and then I'll always get it done. I'll always make it. But without that, I will spitball for for years. Yeah, I I think all of us have that tendency to procrastinate from time to time, you know, especially things that are unpleasant, just putting them off, hoping that somehow they'll go away. But I sometimes also have the opposite problem where um, I just want it to be over with and I want to get something done. And I think it is also worth resisting that tendency. Um, I I actually talked to students about a concept, you know, like so many good ideas. I don't remember where I got it, but it's not original. I heard it from somewhere else, which is the need to exercise strategic patience. So for those of you who are procrastinating, you can just call it strategic patience and maybe feel a little better about it. You know, for example, if you are negotiating something and you just want it to be done, you know, you, you shouldn't go twice in a row, right? You've made your offer and you might be frustrated by how much time it's taking because you want to resolve the matter. Maybe your client's even asking for you to resolve the matter. And so you say, I'm exercising strategic patience. I, I know it's hard to wait, but it's best to wait. Um, sometimes when you wait, things do go away, the need to do things. Uh, you know, they find out that they got the answer to the question or the need for the thing went away. So there is value in strategic patience. And even if it's not, you can, if you call procrastination, strategic patience, you can make it sound a whole lot better. Our final question comes to us from Arlene, who asks, does the proposed subcommittee to the House Judiciary Committee, which will allegedly investigate the weaponization of the federal government by reviewing ongoing criminal investigations, violate the Constitution's separation of powers? Arlene, the answer, I think, is absolutely yes. Uh, You know, the Constitution creates this three-branch government, uh, which has the, the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch. And it is within the domain of the executive branch to conduct criminal investigations. In fact, there is kind of standard language that the Justice Department asserts whenever Congress asks for information about ongoing criminal investigations and will typically assert executive privilege and say, this relates to an ongoing criminal investigation. We cannot comment on it. We will not provide answers to your questions. We will not provide documents. Um, It was on this basis that Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, was held in contempt for refusing to provide documents about the Fast and Furious investigation about guns um, out of uh, the District of Arizona. Um, And they pushed for it. So I don't know that 
this will cause the Congressional Subcommittee to back down and accept that answer. In fact, um, Joyce Vance uh, wrote about this in her Substack Civil Discourse, which I recommend everybody for excellent reading. You can find it online for free uh, or subscribe if it moves you. But um, she wrote about this and about this very standard process of asserting executive privilege when this happens. And, and she and others have speculated that this may all be subterfuge for holding Merrick Garland in contempt or even impeaching him because they know this as well as anybody does. So uh, that this is theater, this is a charade, uh, and it is just so that when DOJ inevitably refuses to comply and provide documents and witnesses in response to these questions, uh, then they'll be held in contempt or impeached. So um, watch this space and see how that plays out. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, hoodies, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Osea Malibu, Lomi, Calm, and Thrive Cosmetics. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. I think the title of this episode should be Let a System Make Some Cash. No. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) And sister has to be spelled S-I-S-T-A. S-I-S-T-A. Yeah, we have we have an organization at, at our law school called Race Sista Loquitur, and it's uh, oh, black, wow. black women That's organization, isn't it? Fabulous! That is excellent. I haven't heard one before. I feel like all of the Latin phrases have been done. Yeah, That's a good one. I know, isn't it good? I love it. That's one of my favorites I've ever heard. Oh, the sister speaks for herself. <laughs>